Hey everybody, welcome back to the Villain News Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Delaney, joined today by my colleagues Betsy Welch and Daniel Benson. What a wild weekend of high-intensity, high-drama racing it was. We had everything from Belgian waffle ride in California to whiskey off-road in Arizona, the Tour of Gila down in New Mexico, and of course the Tour de Romandie in Switzerland. So we're going to kick it off talking dirty racing uh, here to discuss this is my colleague Betsy Welch. Betsy, how are you today? I'm great. I am. Um, I was not at any of those races. Um, I got to take a pass this weekend, which was good. Recovering a little bit from a big gravel trip up to Oregon. Um, so it was fun to watch everything kind of as a spectator. Um, ben, your coverage of BWR on our Instagram was really exciting. You were in the lead car, which was a new experience for you, I think. Yeah, that was that was fun. Hanging out the window of... Uh... Joe Marks and Michael Marks's lead vehicle, the yeah, Belgian Waffle Ride San Diego. I'd been to the other ones and certainly written about the original a number of times, but that was my first time out there at that race. And it was fun to cover that race from the front. And uh, you know, the course is a mix of dirt and pavement. Uh, Michael was calling it the largest unroad race <laughs> in the world. Uh, a lot of the paths were right next to paved roads so it was fun being in the car and be able to see the action in the dirt from the mostly the comfort of the of the car so yeah that was that was super fun and it was also good to see alexi vermulen get a win he's been knocking on the door for a while uh, and uh, i think there's a lot of a lot of happy fans seeing alexi take a, a hard-fought well-earned win out there yeah that was that was cool to see alexi win and it'll be fun to you know, he's part of the Lifetime Grand Prix series, so um, not that this race was, but that'll be interesting to follow along with him then. And then in the women's race, we had a winner who perhaps wasn't surprising or is um, quickly not becoming a surprising um, person we see on top of the podium. We had Mo Wilson. Um, Just obliterated the field. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, she won by 25 minutes over Flavia Oliveira, yeah, who's no slouch, right, right, and and just how casually she can win so dominantly is ridiculous. I was asking her at the end. So you know, at what point did you intend to go solo? Asking Mariah this, and she's like, "Ah, oh, I wasn't really trying to go solo. I just gave it a little effort on the on the climb and figured Flavia would catch me, and then it worked out." You know, and essentially, like did a seven. You know, it's a hundred, basically forty mile race, and. Yeah she was trucking solo for half of that. And, you know, occasionally she would link up with a few men who would usually hang on to her wheel for dear life for a little while until they would get jettisoned. But yeah. Yeah. Didn't seem tired at the finish. It's just like in a league of her own. Clearly. Yeah. It's, it's cool. You know, she's, she's her, she just, she also won sea otter, not by, that was a much closer race, but I yes. think one of the things that's cool to to see Mo doing and that she's talked about too is like really leaning into her instincts and like learning how to just whatever feels right in the moment, not to doubt it, not to question it, and just go. And it sounds like that's what happened um, in California. Yeah, she was you know referencing mid south when Lauren De Crescenzo went uh, fairly early. Her instinct at the time was like, wait, that's too early. I'm just going to stick right. with the group and then regretted that afterwards. 
Um, and in a sense, flipped the switch. And yeah, it's sea otter, the the fuego. Yeah, felt the thing. Okay, now it's the time. Let's go. You can't. Right. Yeah, yes. and, that, and that was in the last you know few kilometers there at Sea Otter at Belgian Waffle Ride. That was seventy miles out. Just okay, let's give it a crack and crack people. She did. Yeah, and not to jump into this too early, but we you know that is one of the things we wanted to talk about today, which was this sort of impending matchup between Lauren Di Crescenzo and Mo um, LDC at, versus wow. Mo Deathmatch. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it's really exciting because you know Lauren Di Crescenzo is also known for these amazing solo flyers, like she did in the second stage of the Gila last week. Um, she can power on, you know, at a level that people can't hang with it, but so can Mo. So what's going to happen um, in Kansas in a month? It's, yeah, yeah, many many races overlapping. This past week and this past week, so as I mentioned, Lorna Crescenzo won a stage and the overall at Tour of the Gila uh, down in New Mexico. Won one stage by five minutes, like the field's chasing, and it's the field versus Lauren. Lauren wins convincingly, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then and then took the overall. So, yeah, Lauren versus Mariah Wilson. You and I both think like that is the match to watch yeah. come Unbound. In June, yeah. How about on on the men's side? We you know we had a number of other women and men who would have been at the front of the field at Buzzard Wolf Ride who were racing, racing in the dirt with the flat bars in Prescott this weekend. Yeah, um, I think it's really cool that so many mountain bikers who are also racing gravel, many of whom are in the Lifetime Grand Prix, chose to race in um, Prescott. On Saturday, um, you know, Epic Rides has long been one of the country's premier cross-country mountain bike race promoters. And, um, you know, due to the pandemic and some other stuff have had to really trim their offerings. But Whiskey Off-Road is, you know, probably one of the most beloved races. And it was back this year after two-year hiatus. And so a lot of people chose to line up there. In fact, um, the whole women's podium minus Katarina Nash, those, those women are all doing the, the Grand Prix and chose to do this 50 mile mountain bike race versus, um, Belgian waffle ride. I, I saw a lot of them on social media saying, you know, this is one of these weekends where I wish I could be in two places at once. Um, yeah. Keegan Swenson, who won the whiskey 50 and Russell, Russell Finsterwald, who got second, both of them have done really well at Belgian waffle ride as well. I think, um, Russell got second last year. So, um, cool to see cross country mountain biking alive and well, cool to see these guys and gals in their element. And also really fun to know that in a month we're going to see them <laughs> ride 200 miles of gravel. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, you know, Keegan Swinson won Friday's fat tire crit and Saturday's 50 miler. As did his teammate, Alexa. Florida. Yes, yes. Swinson seems like the guy to win Lifetime Grand Prix. His, you know, mountain bike skills phenomenal. His fitness exceptional. Seems like the only question there is, can the young lad go the two hundred miles and still have have the punch there at the finish? That part is TBD. Although 
I will remind you, he in February, he won 24 hours in the Old Pueblo, um, a 24-hour race. Um, and he told me, actually, we talked yesterday, he said that that equated to about 350 miles. <laughs> so I think the endurance question is actually answered. Yeah, I was saying we, we have never seen him at Unbound Gravel True. racing 200 miles. So that, that's the only... That's the only question, and it seems, yeah, to your point, with twenty four hours or or any pretty much any other long race he's lined up at this year, uh, he's going to be the guy to beat. Yeah, totally. It's it's exciting, and you know, both of the both of the races, the men's and women's, are going to be really exciting. And I think that's one of the coolest parts about this series is that it brings it's bringing together like some the best riders in the country, basically. I mean, granted not road, but off-road riders in the country are all we're, like all eyes are on them. And it's, it's really fun. It's fun as a fan. It's yeah. Well, a- I, yeah. I would argue there's some of the top, uh, you know, former road talents are in the mix at lifetime mm-hmm. Grand Prix. Um, Ruth Winder, us, you know, former us national champ, same with Alex Howes, who's out there giving it a good effort and kind of came apart at the end at uh, Buzz and Wolf Ride this weekend. Um, yeah. You know, Pete Stetton, et cetera. So there's, there's certainly a list of current and former World Tour roadies in the mix. At Buzz and Wolf Ride, we also had Matt Beers take second, um, an exceptional mountain biker from South Africa, won Cape Epic last year, uh, was second this year. Um, and then we've got, yeah, cyclocross racers, professional mountain bike racers, like all the different disciplines are coming together in the Lifetime Grand Prix. You know, Ashton Lambie. Yeah. World record holder in the individual pursuit, world champion in the individual pursuit. Going for it. So that that's, a, for me, that's a big part of the, uh, what's captivating is like, how will this all shake out? And not just in, in one one day's racing, but over the, the course of, of six very different events. Yeah. And, you know, additionally, and I think this was, a goal of lifetime was to like elevate the level of, of all racing in the U S. So, you know, it's cool that, yeah, people are focused on this series. They're also focused on the BWR quadruple, um, which is a overall for all four BWRs, but then you have these one day, um, events all across the country that people are going to, that people, that people hold really important. Like, um, you know, gravel loco is coming up in a week and a half down in Texas. Um, I heard Mo Wilson say she's going to throw in, she's going to, um, line up at mountain bike nationals in winter park. Like I think the excitement and the stoke and the racing begets more racing. So we're going to see people lining up at stuff that may not be part of a series, but is, is part of the domestic racing scene, which is really cool. For sure. Yeah. Alexi, one of his, you know, he's on the jukebox squad, um, as is Ashton Lambie and Phil Guyman, among others. One of his, you know, he's racing mountain bikes, he's racing gravel bikes. And one of his big goals is to win us road national championships. You know, he was fourth there racing solo against the rally squad who, uh, played it well and earned it last year. He was, Alexi was fourth last year, wants to win stars and stripes on the road. So, yeah, that's cool. Same with Lauren DiCrescenzo, right? Like she always says, I'm a roadie at heart. Um, actually, she wants to go to Road Worlds. And 
that's another thing that I think is cool about the Lauren DiCrescenzo Mo matchup is like they're very different in terms of their Everything. interests. <laughs> in what? Everything. Well, I mean, they're except I their talent, say, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Like their insane fitness and endurance, but yeah, super different goals and and sort of styles. But like again, I think. A lot of ado has been made about the death of racing in the U.S., um, but it's it's not dead. It's just taking on a really unique form. Agreed. Have we seen Wilson and DeCrescenzo go head to head before? Just mid south, so where yeah, right, you know right, where right. Lauren took off and Mo sort of later lamented that she didn't follow. And that was that was the only time in the last couple of years that they've. That's the only one that I can think of, but I, I forget lots of things. I've hit in my head a number of times. Yeah, Lauren's Lauren's schedule is not, you know, she's not part of the Grand Prix. Um, and like I said, she has some real aspirations on the road. So Mo just seems to be hopping into every race possible. Um, in fact, I think she's doing Gravel Locos and Rule of Three. Yep, and she just added a uh, cross-country race in Utah this coming weekend off the cuff. So that's three races between now and Unbound. Yep. Um, I think Lauren might be not racing between them, but I'm not. I'm not sure. And what is next for you on the on the Betsy Welch World <laughs> Traveling Calendar? World Tour. Well, I'm not sure, Ben. Because okay, I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it out loud. Uh, I am planning on doing the Unbound XL in a month's time. XL, no, you aren't. XL, well, sorry, XL. XL. Now we were, Betsy. We were just talking about you. You were extolling the virtues and all the beautiful things about doing the gravel middle distances, right? Like many of these races have. I know. You know, there's the marquee thing, like you know, unbound. It's the two hundred. There's also one hundred and other distances, or Belgian yes. waffles. There's a the long ones. I enjoy doing the wafer on Sunday. You know, eighty miles, and that felt that felt nice. That felt like and good you and won, and you won. I won the old my little old guy division. I didn't win the whole thing. Rob Britton uh, came out and did Rob Britton things. Former tour of Utah winner. Uh, there was the the double header at Belgian Waffle Ride, where for the uh, exuberant among us, you could do the hundred forty mile on Saturday, then the. 77 miler Sunday, lowest cumulative time wins. And uh, yeah, Rob Britton, Easton Overland, who was having biblical cramps on Saturday, was pretty shocked at his first taste of a, a big gravel race, was blown out, came back and uh, won on Sunday. But yes, point, yeah, point being, there's multiple distances and the middle distance is often a nice distance to do. And you've been telling me I should do this for a while. And what do you do? You go in the other direction. Well, that's the thing. I, I kind of dabbled in that last year and it was fun and I went fast and, you know, I like to try new things. I like, I like a good story. What can I say? But the only reason I bring that up and basically confess it to everyone who's listening is that I'm a little, I'm a little nervous. I'm a little scared. And so I feel like As I you should be ride my bike a lot this month and try and minimize my time cramped in airplane seats and um, in hotel rooms. So that said, might be on the ground at Gravel Locos in Heiko, Texas. Um, 
would love to see that event IRL. Um, I did some writing and reporting around it last year and lots of, lots of folks will be at that race. Um, also a chance I might be on the ground in Bentonville for rule of three, which is such a cool format. Um, the course is equal thirds, gravel, pavement, and single track. However, if I'm not at either of those, we'll definitely be reporting from afar. And then, yeah, in a month is really sort of consuming my thoughts. Yeah, have fun with that. <laughs> have fun with that. Uh, yeah, also coming up on the calendar is Wild Horse Gravel, uh, one of our house events that I uh, was lucky enough to be a part of putting on. Betsy, you've been out to that one also. So I'll, I'll, I will be there with Ashton Lambie and Hannah Shell, Jake McGee, and and others, uh, there's a couple distances on offer. You can choose on the day which which uh, distance you want to do. That's cool. out on the yeah Western Slope, of Colorado. Some uh, cowboy cowgirl gravel way out there. Different flavor, different vibe than say you know Belgian Waffle Ride, like in the heart of San Diego County. A lot of uh, high density area. The High Lonesome Ranch in Colorado has uh, a different vibe altogether. So enjoy them both, and looking forward to doing wild horse gravel here. In a couple weeks, and we should get out on some uh, some long training rides with this this XL coming up, Betsy. Yes, please help. All right, <laughs> let's let's do that, and we will we will leave it there for now. We're going to jump across the ocean and catch up with our colleague Daniel Benson. Thanks, Betsy. Bye. Tour de Romandy 2022 was a wild and furious ride here to bring us inside the action and tell us what it all means was the man himself who was there on the ground, Vela News Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Benson. Dan, how are you, sir? Good to see you. Good day. Yes, um, I'm well, thank you. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing just fine. So, we, you know, we're taught to ignore the haters in life, but you, we cannot ignore Ethan Hater. That was one of my big takeaways from uh, six days of racing in Switzerland. Uh, Rohan Dennis came out Flying, then fizzled, and uh, Alexander Vlasov rode, jumped off his bike, jumped onto another bike, and rode away with the overall win uh, in the final time trial, which uh, featured uh, a unique format with some riders switching bikes, some riders not switching bikes. So I want to hear from you, like what you think the the big, you know, the big takeaways were. You know, we obviously read your coverage and Felipe York's coverage. Both of you were there throughout the the weeks of racing, but like, what were the, the, the big stories? And I'd like to prompt that by uh, getting you to talk a bit about Ethan Hader, who won the prologue and then came back a couple days later and won a sprint. I mean, when was the last time you saw a rider do a, such a double at a stage race? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I mean, it's interesting because in, in theory, he probably could have won the first four stages. Like he won that prologue in Lausanne. And then the next day we had that uphill finish to Romont and he crashed because he was at the back with like 15 kilometers to go. And he admitted that that was a huge mistake. And it wasn't a certainty that he would have won, but he definitely would have been in the mix. He won the next day. And then the, the following day on stage three, I believe, he finished second to Patrick Bevan. And his positioning for that sprint wasn't perfect. And he probably could have had that one too. So we, we could have been in a situation where not only did he have the race lead for a day, but he could have actually won four straight stages, four straight <laughs> world tour stages in a race. Yeah. Um, uh, he would have gone from yeah, never winning a world tour stage so far to, to winning four back to back, which definitely wouldn't have been done before for a, for a uh, I think what, like a second year, second year pro. 
but he's the real deal. British national time trial champion writing for Ineos Grenadiers. Uh, how did he get? Uh, how did he get the attention of the the super team and get signed to Ineos? He was a, I think he was at Wiggins for a period of time back in 2018, and then he was um, dovetailing that with track ambitions um, and riding on the academy, and then he came on board with Ineos in 2020, which is a terrible time to turn pro for Ineos um, because you're never going to race really because of all the COVID situations. Um, but he's just come on in leaps and bounds. He hasn't done a Grand Tour yet. That might come with the Vuelta later in the year. Um, but he's just such a versatile rider. We, we saw that last year with Salt he was getting, whether it was Tour of Britain or Tour of Norway or Butte del Sol. He was just so consistent. I think he won like Tour of, Tour of Norway overall as well as winning, winning two stages there. Um, he missed out on the Classics this year, which was a little bit of a surprise. Um, that we didn't really see him that much there. But you know, he had a bit of a difficult year because of because of COVID early on in January. He got fourth in Algarve. I was there and he was really disappointed with that result, which was surprising because he was up against some really big big climbers there, you know, with, with a lot more experience. But he's one of those riders that's coming through at the moment and it's so difficult to kind of pigeonhole him because, you know, is he a climber? Is he a sprinter? He can, you know, is he a time trialist? He really is. He's everything. I don't know whether that will transfer into the high mountains when as he gets older. Um and you know, longer formatted stage races like Romandy, like Swiss, like Dauphiné. But in the shorter format, he looks like a real, a real find. And they had a really young team there this year as well. Other than Garrett Thomas, you know, they had Luke Platt, they had Magnus Sheffield, they had some really good, good up and coming riders. And and yeah, Hater really kind of stood out. He's got a bit more experience, obviously, than Sheffield and Platt, and a, and a faster finish. So that kind of means that he's going to win more races or be in contention for more races just naturally. But yeah, he's got some. Yeah, he's got some big things ahead for sure. For sure. So Hader went one two on one in two stages. Uh, Bora Hansgrohe also had some uh, one two action on stage four. Aguita and Vlasov came across the line first and second. That was a, a cool finish line shot. Seeing uh, the second place person celebrate. Uh, normally, when that happens, it's because they're they mistimed their celebration. They posted up a scooch too early, and and someone will jab their bike with the bike through across the line first. Uh, but here, this was a teammate celebrating uh, his mate's victory, uh, and then we saw Vlasov get a chance to put his hands up in the air for his own win. Uh, the the next stage, were you surprised to see Vlasov uh, riding so well at Tour de Romandie? I will- He's he's definitely found something that he didn't have a starner since his move to Bora this year, which is just consistency. I mean, I know he pulled out of Paradis with illness, but other than that, he's been in the top five in every stage race he's done so far this year, like UAE included, I think Catalonia, and obviously winning Romandy. He's he looks solid. Um and you know, what I was surprised with was just his margin of victory in that final time trial. Like he just blew, not just Rowan Dennis away, he blew everyone away. He won by 30 odd seconds. And and some people can say, you know, it, it, it wasn't the strongest field, but he still had to put that effort in. And yeah, he, he just destroyed everyone really on that final climb to, to Villars. So yeah, now he goes in, I think he has a bit of a break and I think he does either Dauphiné or Swiss and then he'll build up for the tour, which, you know, he, I don't know where he'll finish there or, or what his kind of, um, what his um, status will be come the end of July. But, he, he looks like he's found 
an element that was probably missing at, at, at Astana for the last couple of years, and that's just all-round consistency. That could all come you know, crashing down at the Tour de France because even his Grand Tour pedigree is, is mixed. You know, he's fourth in the Giro before, but he's also got a couple of DNFs there. So, um, but this will be his first Tour de France in July, so it'll be it will be interesting to see how he goes. But in terms of his performance over those two days, he he raced perfectly. We had some question marks over you know how, what what Bora's tactics were on that uphill. Um, mountaintop finish because it just looked like they weren't Higita and um, Vlasov weren't really communicating with each other like in terms of what was going to happen with the bonus seconds but yeah it shows what we know about road cycling because it's a matter <laughs> of one dot in the end because Vlasov just was so dominant in that time trial I mean as dominant as he was you know also Roman Dennis you know he just had a he had a, he had a really bad day on that on the time trial bike well on the road bike actually he was fine on the time trial bike and then as soon as he swapped to the to his road machine, he just he just he just had a bit of a he just fell apart really on that climb. Yeah, so stage four, second from last day, that was when Uguita and Vlasov went one two with the summit finish. Stage five, the final day was the individual time trial. Coming into that stage, Rohan Dennis was wearing the leader's jersey. Tell us a bit about the the format of that time trial. It was just under sixteen k long, started flat and then. Uh, kicked up pretty quickly, so it was an uphill time trial. How many how many riders stuck with the time trial bike throughout, and how many switched? Just roughly, so, you know. Yeah, everyone I saw that came across the line was on a road bike, and I didn't go to the start, so I presume that everyone I saw on TV footage started on the time trial bike and then made that switch. Um, yeah, all their time trial bikes would have already been there anyway so I don't know the, the rough percentage but ev- everyone that I saw at least finished on a road bike it's a similar course to what they did in 2018 um, they finished on the same climb only that time they didn't have that flat 6-8 kilometre run in to the start of the climb it was just bang here's a here's an uphill time trial mm-hmm. and the only person that I saw on a time trial bike that day was um, Victor Karpenatz, who just wanted to test out his time trial bike, even though there wasn't an inch of flat road. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it seems like um, it, it's not it's not something that we regularly see. I think we saw it in the World Championships in Bergen a few years ago. A few guys switched to time trial bikes to road bikes then. Um, but the format seems to be quite interesting. I think there's a good dynamic there. Is is it a is it a gimmick having riders switch bikes halfway through? I mean, it's just like, do some riders see it that way? The, the way some riders see the inclusion of gravel is like, hey, this is, yeah, this might be some chaotic fun for fans to watch, but this isn't pure bike racing. I, I think it's slightly different to gravel in the sense that it's, um, you know, we, we, we have seen it before. We, we you know, can't, you know, switching bikes within road races happens regularly. You know, people, like, well, riders will get to the final climb and all of a sudden have a bike change. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it, it's, it's kind of an extension of that. Um, I don't think it's a gimmick. I think that riders really look into it and you know, they'll have sports teams around them that will give them all the data and analysis to not just tell them if it's worth it, but also just tell them like exactly where on the course they should do it. So it might not be in the lead up to the climb. It might not be you know, just as this climb starts. It might be two, 300 meters onto the climb, which I think where a lot of riders are doing it. So we saw FDJ practicing in the morning, mm-hmm. um, maybe a few hundred meters onto the climb. Um, so riders would get a good run up and then they'd have an extension where they can, you know, they get their push and then they can carry on and it might plateau for a little bit and just gives them a chance to kind of build up speed. So yeah, I don't think it's a gimmick. I think it's fine. I think, um, yeah, I don't think it's a, I don't think people should kind of 
dismiss it. Um, and it does add, like you said, a bit of entertainment and excitement and, and it changed the race, you know, it, not just, you know, obviously the profile of the course, because going into that final climb, Dennis was on par to, to, to hold off Vlasov, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's a nice little format that, 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 that we could see in more stage races in the future. Yeah, I I enjoy watching it and watching the the different tactics and how well riders execute you know, the bike change and yeah, it just just adds more more complexity to. There's, there's nothing wrong. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with making a time trial more exciting, right? I mean, <laughs> um, so I'm all for that. I'm all for that. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, and Daniel, you are also able to get some some good Scooby spy shots of Vlasov's road bike, which I appreciate. And we put up a gallery on, on his bike and how his mechanics have customized his cockpit to get his fit exactly how he likes it. He, like the rest of his boar hands, grow teammates race on a specialized S works tarmac, which like so many bikes these days comes with its own integrated cockpit. His fit wasn't precisely where he wanted it. So his mechanics put on a pro stem and then, uh, did some custom filing, uh, filed down the spacers, uh, and then, painted over those with the with the sharpie and then similarly to get his computer mounted they took a file to a little rubber uh clip in parts on his aerofly handlebar so he could get a, a k-edge mount on there um and so it's a little similar to the the time trial swap um unnecessary uh fiddling or or interesting um, minutia and i would i would vote the latter so i would Encourage you listeners, if you haven't seen those uh, those photos, go go check out velonews.com, as well as all of Dan and Felipe York's great coverage from the Tour de Romandie. I'm glad you can spot that stuff because I literally have no idea what I'm looking at. But I just take photos. <laughs> I, I, went up, I went up to the Bora bus and I was like, oh, can I take Vassal, take photos of Vassal's bike? And they were like, yeah, sure, as long as you don't take photos of Higita's bike. And I was like, okay, what's wrong with Hagita's, or what's different with Hagita's bike? And they wouldn't tell me. Uh-huh. And then I spent the next 45 minutes looking at Hagita's bike and <laughs> could spot nothing. And then, oh, we just made some changes that he's trying out. And I couldn't see a thing. I didn't know what I was looking at. Just a small bike. Just yeah. like a small person's bike. <laughs> well, when, yeah. someone, when, when the team says, don't look at it, that's always a good sign that that's exactly what you want to be looking at. But, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I took some photos, but I literally couldn't spot any difference. So if someone wants to look at photos of online and try and track them down and decide what that is, but yeah, it went completely over my head. Maybe there was nothing. Maybe it was someone else's bike and they were just traveling. It was a ruse. They were stuff. throwing you off, yeah, off, off the yeah. trail. So so what's next? What's next for you, sir? We've got the, the um, Giro's coming in, coming in hot. Yeah, Giro's coming up. So we've got um, a team there, Andy Hood is going to be out there. Jim Cotton's going to be out there for the first half. And then we've got Jane Starr shooting photos for us and obviously some great photos, great tech. Um, we have Scyther Shea and Pete Cousins doing the second half for us. We're going to have you know, daily coverage, so news, features, analysis. We have a Richie Port blog, which we kicked off last week. And um, we spoke to him again today and he's writing another one literally as we as we do this podcast. So hopefully um, we should have that online in the next few minutes. He talks about haircuts and um, fast, 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 the fastest haircuts you can ever imagine at Giro d'Italia. Really mm. important stuff, really important <laughs> stuff. Um, but no, it's great. He's, uh, he gives some really good insight into you know, his final grand tour um, before retirement at the end of the season. Um, he talks about Ineos' team tactics and what they go to the race with in terms of ambitions and just really brings us in behind the scenes of you know what it's like to be a Grand Tour rider um, at the Giro d'Italia, which is really difficult this year because um, of COVID still, you know, obviously, you know, the protocols that are in place and 
access isn't what it used to be pre-pandemic. So yeah, we're really um, we're really happy that, that kind of Richie's writing for us about bike racing and haircuts. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> all great stuff. Very much looking forward to it. So we, we will leave it there. Thanks for your Rome coverage. Thanks in advance for the Giro coverage. Looking forward to that very much. And uh, listeners, thank you as always for tuning in to the Velo News podcast. We will speak with you next week. Oh, 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 o